One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The FT. Welcome back to Energy Weekly with me, David Blair. On the show this week, how quickly can Libya return to its pre-war production level of 1.6 million barrels of oil a day? Nuri Berouin, who is the newly appointed chairman of the National Oil Company of Libya, said that in 15 months, so by the end of next year, Libya could be producing again the, the 1.6 million barrels a day uh, that it was doing before the war. But he insisted that that was an optimistic forecast. Zimbabwe and the fight between the government and the mining companies over indigenization laws. The important background to this is that Zimbabwe, which has had its travails that we all know about in the past 10 years under Mugabe, the economy, one could argue, could be single-handedly revived by the mining sector. It has the world's second largest known reserves of platinum. It has a lot of gold, including the infrastructure, because gold's been mined there for 50 or 60 years. Diamonds other minerals. And if you can create anything other than a shambles of an investment environment there, the big companies would come flooding in. And the eagerly anticipated promise of oil and gas in Greenland fails so far to deliver. You have to bear in mind that the seas where Cairn is prospecting are twice as large as the UK North Sea. And it took 50 wells before anybody found oil in the UK North Sea. And Cairn has only drilled five. So There's a long way to go. However, I think that investors are making a very sharp distinction right now between companies that find oil and those that don't. And those that don't are being sold off quite strongly. I think that's what's happening to Karen. Let's start the show in the oil fields of Libya. Joining me in the studio is the FT's commodities editor, Javier Blas. Javier, you've just returned from Libya. First of all, can you give us a picture of how extensive the damage has been to Libya's oil installations? It's, it's difficult to generalize because what you find traveling around the country is that there are some facilities that have been completely damaged where it's going to need a lot of repairs and it's going to take months for, for getting the, the, the facility back. On the other hand, you get facilities who have been absolutely untouched. It's like nothing has happened. I found oil fields deep in the desert that the only problem have is that after six months of sun storms, some of the wells were half buried. But other than that, it was nothing. It was just perfect. It was pristine. On the other hand, 200 kilometers on the other direction, you will find a facility that has been bombed repeatedly and it was completely destroyed. So in general, I will say that around 20% of the facilities have been damaged. The other common problem, I will say, is that in general, most facilities have been looted and vandalized. For example, residential complexes for the oil workers in the desert, they were absolutely upside down. They have been turned to uh, temporary garrisons for the military. Everything was missing from microwave from an oil worker to a stereo from another worker. TV sets were all gone. Even beds were missing in some facilities. But the degree of damage varies significantly from place to place. But in general terms, are people quite encouraged by what they've seen? 
Well, this is not Kuwait in 1991, where Saddam Hussein army, when he was withdrawing from the Emirates, just torched the oil fields. So, of course, the situation is much better than in Kuwait in 1991. And I don't think that the level of violence now is similar to the one that we saw in Iraq after the U.S. invasion in 2003. So I think that there is some degree of confidence that the situation is not as bad as the worst-case scenario. However, it's going to be a difficult process to return to full production. I spoke in Benghazi with Nuri Beruin, who is the newly appointed chairman of the National Oil Company of Libya, who said that he thinks that in 15 months, so by late next year, by the end of next year, Libya could be producing again the the 1.6 million barrels a day that it was doing before the war. But he insisted that that was an optimistic forecast. However, he thinks that there was room for being optimistic because now that Gaddafi is out of the picture, he thinks that the Libyan oil workers are working for themselves. They will be more passionate. They will try to reconstruct the country. And he thought that in 15 months, they could get the production back to the level that it was in February. As you say, that's a pretty optimistic forecast. I think independent observers are talking more about two or perhaps even three years. What do you make of it? It's optimistic, but is it still realistic? The most pessimistic forecast I have seen is 36 months, so exactly three years, as you, you are saying, David. I think that is a realistic one, but there are two caveats that I will make. One is that a lot of the damage is invisible, is underground. For example, one of the oil fields I visited, Salton oil field, is the oldest in Libya. It started producing exactly 50 years ago this month. Okay, the oil field is, is okay. The wells are there, they are half covered in sand, but you, you need a shovel and, and you, you get the sand out. But you don't know how is the reservoir. 1,500 meters underground, oil has not been produced for six months. And those reservoirs, when they are not produced, we, we don't know exactly the, what has happened there. So when the engineers open again the taps, we will know exactly if the oil flows or maybe some of the wells will not produce again. So you will need to drill again and so on. That, that, that takes time. So that's one of the caveats. And there are thousands and thousands of wells in, in Libya. And so far, engineers, as far as I know, they have got access only to 160 wells. So this is going to be a process that is going to be long. The other caveat that I will make is security. The country is not yet secure. Gaddafi has not been captured. There are four cities that are resisting the rebels. And only a few days ago, there was an attack by loyalists of Gaddafi against the refinery and oil terminal Raslanouf. They killed 17 people. That refinery, I visited myself. I was on that gate where the attack happened only a few days ago. And... If I have to say, of all the facilities I visited on my trip in, in Libya, I thought that Rashanu was the best protected, probably was the most disciplined army that I found, the best equipped army that I found. The fact that Gaddafi tried to attack that facility tell us a lot about insecurity. And then if these attacks continue, they may not hamper the efforts of the Libyan workers to get production back. There will be setbacks. But for sure, who is not going to be returning is the international oil companies. And that's a critical. How long will it be before international companies are confident enough to redeploy their people back in Libya? I think that it's going to take a long time. And maybe some continental European companies, they may take a bit more risk. I don't see British companies coming back anytime soon. For sure, I don't see American companies returning anytime soon. They will have to be a lot better security on the field at least at the moment. At the moment, the security is very thin. As an example, I arrived to the SCDR oil terminal. That's the largest oil terminal in Libya. The gate was open. 
There was no one at the gate. So I basically told my driver, well, let's go. We go in, we tour the facility for about 45 minutes. And after 45 minutes, just a lonely pickup from the rebel army arrived to check who we are. Biggest facility in the country. This, this is the biggest facility in the country. I show a, a letter of accreditation by the Financial Times. They say, okay, well, I'm going to show you the facility. And we continue taking a look at it. And that's just a critical piece of kit for Libya oil export. So the security, I don't think, is there. The companies are going to take a lot of precautions. They have sent advanced consultants, quote, unquote, that they are checking security for the international oil companies. As far as I know, speaking with some of those consultants in Benghazi, they don't think that the situation is right now for the return of any foreign contractors into the country. Javier, it sounds like for a moment you were the owner of the SCDA oil facility. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's move to the Zimbabwean mining sector and an argument between the government and the mining companies over a so-called indigenization law, which requires that 51% of all businesses should be owned by black Zimbabweans. Joining me to explain what this means for the multi-million dollar mining companies located in the country is the FT's mining correspondent, Will McNamara. Will, just tell us about the status of this law. Has it actually been passed? Has it actually come into effect now? It has been passed actually two years ago. And what surprised a lot of people in the mining sector was in the the last weeks of the summer, all of a sudden, Zimbabwe's government started enforcing this and writing to the multinational mining companies in Zimbabwe saying, you haven't put forward a law to essentially give over a controlling stake in your multi-billion dollar operations to quote unquote black Zimbabweans without explaining what that meant, without explaining what indigenization meant. And the important background to this is that Zimbabwe, which has had its travails that we all know about in the past 10 years under Mugabe, the economy, one could argue, could be single-handedly revived by the mining sector. It has the world's second largest known reserves of platinum. It has a lot of gold, including the infrastructure, because gold's been mined there for 50 or 60 years. Diamonds, other minerals, and if you can create anything other than a shambles of an investment environment there, the big companies would come flooding in. So what's happening now is that this indigenization debate is coming at quite a critical crossroads, I think, for the country in terms of are you going to scare away people just when they were starting to look? Why has the government turned up the heat now? Is there an election coming up, perhaps? Yes, there is an election happening, most probably next year. And, I mean, analysts read into this debate a power struggle between the the two components of the government, which is Robert Mugabe and his ZANU-PF supporters and Morgan Changarai and his Movement for Democratic Change supporters. This is a real Siamese twin of a government pairing two men who, by many accounts, hate each other. And the sort of inherent contradictions of their policies show through. If a mining company ignores these letters and just carries on as normal, what happens to them? What's the penalty? That is a great question that many big companies are wondering about now. In the past two years, they essentially have gotten away with it. According to one of the companies invested there, the order came from on high two years ago that you had to come up with some sort of credible proposal to give away 51%, and only six companies bothered to respond. And so the indigenization minister over the summer said, okay, now we're really, really serious and we're threatening license revocations, we're threatening to kick you out of the country, you better come to the table. I mean, you could argue that that the achievement the government's made now is actually scaring people enough with sort of vague threats to come to the table. Whether or not 51% happens is almost immaterial. Um, They have responded to the call 
and they're negotiating packages that could lead to, to a higher equity stake or a higher tax take or something for the government. And just to be clear about this, all the big mining players in Zimbabwe are now conducting talks with the government on how to comply with this law. As far as we know. You know, this is a country that has, I think in the popular imagination, largely been written off. But the likes of Rio Tinto, Impala Platinum, the second biggest platinum mining company in the world, and other London-listed mining companies are there. And they would, by all their public statements, like to continue investing. The platinum price is high. The gold price is high. If they can find a workable solution, those mines will pay. And just to offer perhaps a cynical view, one possibility would be that you begin the negotiations, you tie them down for as long as you possibly can, uh, you see out the election, and then you hope that after the election the government just forgets about it. I think you should run a mining company. (laughs) Thank you very much, Will. And to our final topic for today, the promise of oil and gas in Greenland seems to have fallen at the first hurdle. Joining me now is the FT Lex writer Vincent Boland. Cairn Energy has committed to spending $1 billion to explore the waters off Greenland. Has the company made a big mistake? Well, I think it's in this case it probably is too early to say, but it has not found any oil yet. You have to bear in mind that the seas where Cairn is prospecting are twice as large as the UK North Sea. And it took 50 wells before anybody found oil in the UK North Sea. And Cairn has only drilled five. So there's a long way to go. However, I think that investors are making a very sharp distinction right now between companies that find oil and those that don't. And those that don't are being sold off quite strongly. I think that's what's happening to Cairn. And are people perhaps contrasting their fortunes with those of Tullow, which has this remarkable record of, you know, going to French Guiana and discovering oil, having already, you know, discovered oil in Ghana and Uganda and so forth? Absolutely. There is a big distinction between the two of them. And I, I think comparisons are inevitable, although perhaps slightly unfair to Cairn, because Tullow is much bigger than, uh, than, than Cairn from a market value point of view. And, and I think the expertise inside Tullow is much higher than it is inside Cairn. But that's Cairn's problem, if you like. But investors are making a big distinction between them. And Tullow found oil in announced a big discovery in French Guyana a couple of weeks ago sent the share price up 20% almost so if you find it you're a winner if you don't you're a loser and do you sense that the market perhaps has less patience now than it once did I mean given the factor that you mentioned a moment ago that it took 50 wells to locate oil in the North Sea five unsuccessful wells off Greenland is no disaster why doesn't the market just appreciate that Well, I think part of the reason probably is that a lot of the UK North Sea exploration was funded by state resources. So there wasn't perhaps the same investor commitment to financing these exploration companies. But the other thing is that because the market is very volatile, investors are looking to see where they can cover themselves and where they can get exposure that might have a better chance of bringing returns than elsewhere. And one of the things they're looking at very closely is what's a company's exploration record? What kind of drilling success has it had. And Tolo has had very high drilling success, much higher than its peers. And again, that's where Tolo scores and Cairn doesn't. So it's a very logical sort of distinction to make, I think, especially in the current market environment. So what happens next? The latest well has been a duster. Do they still have other wells coming up? Is the campaign still ongoing? They have, I think, four more wells to drill, and they are probably funded for those four wells. After that, Cairn's strategy tends to be to farm in uh, some of those, or farm out, whatever the phrase is, some of those um, uh, wells, and bring in a partner to help pay for any further drilling. I think they may very well go down that route. Um, But really, they're only funded for another four, and they're already committed to handing back four and a half billion dollars to investors from the sale of their stake in Cairn Energy. They have the money for that. 
But that's really all that's in the share price right now. Investors are really not really backing the Greenland prospecting so far because I think it's probably too early. And just one last question. What is the prize? What's at stake here? How much oil do people think could be in the waters off Greenland? The US Geological Survey says that there could be 27 billion barrels of oil equivalent off the west coast of Greenland alone. So that includes gas too. Yes. And that's where Cairn is drilling. Now, Cairn does have one big advantage in that it's one of the first companies in there. And if it finds commercial quantities of oil and gas, I think it could be onto a big thing. But the task is huge and it's a very difficult environment to drill in. Vincent, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Javier Blas, Will McNamara and Vincent Boland. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.